gaslighting is? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, either do I. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> anyway, it's Potter Zeebie, the comic book nerd cast that dares to ask, what, me worry? I'm your idiot, Kyle Bridget, and with me, your co-idiot. Patty McInerney. Wait, no. Aren't I? It's I'm the idiot this week. No, you're the co-idiot this week. I'm the idiot this week. All right, my bad. I'm sorry. Next week, you can be the co-idiot. Anyway, we better get to our first department. Uh, it's Rambling Men Department. You know, I, I did have an alternate title, and that's um, uh, the Eye of the Beholder Department. You want, you want to know what's on my mind? What's on your mind? Eyes. Oh. Glass eyes, in fact. Oh, I thought you meant the letter. No, 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 no. Not eyes is in the letter, not eyes is in the animal. You know, that's like a term for a sloth, an eye. Yeah. Um, or oh, the thing that pirates say. Yeah, not like an affirmation, eye eye. Yeah. We're talking about a peeper's eyeballs from the, uh, <laughs> the human head. I've noticed that there's a lack of people with glass eyes in Hollywood. And I was just wondering what's up with that. Are you sure that there's not a proliferation of glass eyes and that the technology that the uh, ultra-wealthy Hollywood elites have access to is just, like, just so spot-on that you don't know? Uh, well, then, I mean, I think that that would make it not a glass eye, then. All right. You're going to have to define your terms here. What do you? How do you define a glass eye? Uh, this is very reactionary. I told you what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to a time when... Peter Falk was on the television, right? Columbo, famous, glass eye, right? Another hero of mine, Sammy Davis Jr., glass eye. There's hundreds of them in the... There's. I came up with the two, actually. I'm, I have to be honest. <laughs> I mean, that was like... That's a pretty good chunk, right? That had to be like 1% of celebrities. Maybe in a certain, like, apartment complex, that's 1% of celebrities. Um... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I can't think of any other celebrities with glass eyes that I know of. Now, I would go with a patch myself. That is true. You know, because the cool thing about having, like, glasses is that you have a fashion accessory, you know, on your face that you have kind of an excuse to wear. Yeah, don't I know it. We do have, speaking of patches, I think um, our eye-patched politicians in the U.S. has gone up tremendously. Because they're all Bond villains. We have US. one, though. I forget his name. He was a Navy SEAL, and he got poked in the eye or something. Oh, Dr. No. Doctor, Dr. No. No, yeah. he, has, he has the and robot hands. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just like you, all you want to see is more Dong and Bush in Hollywood. All I want to see is more maimed and dismembered people. All right? <laughs> I don't think I said that's all I want to see. Uh, all right. <laughs> But I do want to see more of that. <laughs> I may have misunderstood the thesis of your rambling men last week, <laughs> two weeks ago. <laughs> well, here's what's on my mind. My kid and my wife, every night before he goes to bed, we have a dance party. It's cute. Yeah, it's fun. We listen to music and, you know, we listen to all kinds of things. But when he picks the music, things like the Spider-Man theme... And Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters mm. is, I'm sure, the number one most played song on my Spotify list. But because of that, the other day, Spotify brought up in its sort of predictive algorithm the Popeye song. Well, blow me down. What's the the Popeye? Yeah, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Oh, you know that Popeye. song? 
Popeye, yeah, Popeye. What did I say? Popeye? Yeah. I say Popeye. Popeye. Yeah. Like people on the East Coast who say robot. <laughs> you know, it's a different pace of life out here. Anyway, so it's Popeye. And, uh, you know, he's tough to the finish because he eats his spinach. That kind of guy. I am what I am and that's all what I am. Yeah. And when I heard it, it brought back this flash of the sort of childhood parody version of this that we used to sing, which was... He's Popeye the Sailor Man. He lives in a garbage can. He turned on the heater and blew off his wiener. He's Popeye <laughs> the Sailor Man. <laughs> we had a different version. That's what I thought would happen. Yeah. What did you guys sing? We had, he's Popeye the Sailor Man. He lives in a garbage can. He eats all the worms and spit out the germs. He's Popeye the Sailor <laughs> Man. <laughs> I like the wiener one, though. <laughs> well, there was a bunch. There's also, I think he turned on the gas and burnt off his ass. <laughs> kids would sing different ones with that you'd kind of add some other lines yeah. uh, i looked up i also saw some other ones including uh he always goes swimming with bald-headed women <laughs> and uh he lived with his granny and tickled her fanny <laughs> he's Ooh. popeye the sailor man <laughs> oh that was an english one Yikes. yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you know it got me thinking about these sort of like childhood parody songs and how they're kind of like early memes right like kids knew them somehow yeah but it wasn't because of the internet so they had these sort of regional variants and they would change over time and it's like you're not really sure where they started just everyone seemed to know them yeah there was a fun one i saw a video about the um what is the one batmobile lost its wheel and the Joker. jingle bells batman smells That's, robin oh, yeah. laid an egg i don't know how i forgot the first part of that song um <laughs> robin lays an egg the Batmobile lost a wheel and the Joker got away. The Simpsons did that, but they said the Joker took ballet and it sort of changed it nationwide. It used to be more of a regional thing where you would either say the Joker got away or the Joker took ballet. And then once the Simpsons did it, it spread the one across the nation. I feel like I'm being gaslit now because I seem to recall <laughs> that episode as being uh, the Joker got away. Oh, well, maybe. Maybe it is. I'm just, I'm saying this. Maybe it was the other memory. way around. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I might be, I might be wrong. Um, that's the version I always knew. And I was thinking that, yeah, maybe the Simpsons did standardize that one. Maybe there was more variants before that. Is it like Steve Goulet or someone who's singing it? Jingle bells, Batman smells, Robin laid an egg. Batmobile lost its wheel and the Joker got away. Hey! Robert Goulet. <laughs> Robert Goulet. That's it. That's it. I yeah. knew it was a Goulet. There's no Steve Goulet, is there? I don't know why I said Steve. Uh, I don't know. That's my go-to, like, name. <laughs> one just came into my mind. One that we sang in school. And I think I may have learned it from my mother or somebody. But we were learning, what is that song? Um, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling down the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Um, glory, hallelujah. Yeah. The chorus of that, glory, glory, hallelujah. The, the version I learned as a kid was, glory, glory, hallelujah, teacher smacked me with a ruler. I hid behind the door with a loaded 44. Now teacher is no more. You know what? I don't think I've ever heard that one. I wonder if that's a kind of American one. It is a quintessentially American song, right? It's like from the revolution. Yeah, we had one here to Tiny Tunes. Do you remember Tiny Tunes? Yeah, where they're babies and it's like, Oh, the well, they're not babies, and... but they're like in school or whatever. Okay. 
they're probably like teens or whatever at I'm best. thinking I'm, I'm you know what I'm confusing Muppet Babies and Tiny Toons there I you go yeah Toons. so Tiny Toons came out a little bit later and it was like the sort of younger versions of you know all the Warner Brothers characters and it had a song that went we're tiny we're toony we're all a little loony and in this cartoony we're invading your TV but in Canada we had a version that all the kids knew that went, we're tiny, we're toony, we can't afford a loony, because Brian Mulrooney invented GST. <laughs> Which, that's like, a very esoteric song for... <laughs> well, someone's someone's dad must have made it up or something, because like the loony, that's the Canadian dollar coin, that had only come into like existence a couple years prior. Mm -hmm. And then Brian Mulrooney was the prime minister who brought in this new GST tax. So yeah. it was like very political, but it's like, it was aimed at kids because like adults didn't really watch Tiny Toons, I don't think. Not adults into politics so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why I like that. I got a couple more for you. So uh, yeah. there's the Arabian myth. And the one that I always grew up singing was, in the land of Oz, where the women wear no bras and the men don't care because they don't wear underwear. <laughs> we had that one we had that one same tune but uh there's a place in france where the naked ladies dance there's a hole in the wall where the men can watch it all <laughs> see that's more fun i like that one better oh i wonder why <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know i like that it's a little bit more edgy uh than just like not wearing bras or underwear uh which is a normal thing to do so there's also in the land of Mars where the ladies smoke cigars and every puff they take is enough to kill a snake. And when the snakes are dead, they put diamonds in their heads. And when the diamonds break, it is 1968. That's nonsense. <laughs> There's a bunch of different versions of it. One of them that kept coming up was in the land of ours. And I'm guessing that's where in the land of Oz sort of came from. Yeah. Huh. And then I've got one more, one more. And I'm wondering, just because this is another one I think that maybe you might have a different version of. Tell me if you've ever heard this one. The Adams family started when Uncle Fester farted. He farted through the keyhole and paralyzed the cat. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, you know, what's fun is I'm singing along in my head and then it, you go off in like some bizarre direction. The way it goes is... When the Adams family started, Uncle Fester farted. They all became retarded. The Adams family. <laughs> okay, so what kind of censorship do you prefer? Do you prefer where we put a bleep in there, or uh... we can't say? Word. <laughs> yeah, we did. No, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> we'll figure out what we'll do about that. Leave it in. <laughs> all right. Well. Now that we're canceled, let's uh, let's leave this department. Choo choo. It's time new and again to probe the future schlock department with that transtemporal horoscopist, the slow voice. Hello friends, I'm the Slow Poisoner. Like you, I am interested in the future. Unlike you, I have been there. And what does the future hold in store for us? 
In the fall of 2025, all the dogs in Moscow, Idaho will mysteriously shake off their tails. Soon after, all the canines in the Midwestern region follow similarly, leaving great mounds of shaggy curling dog tails in the streets of cities stretching from Moscow, Idaho to Naperville, Illinois. 2026 will be a watershed for unisex fashions in the fashion industry, as leisure suits constructed entirely of sausage casings become the must-have item for the jet set, who wish to look fabulous while making a statement. And following in the bouncy footsteps of the Amazonian tribes of yore, who used to dip their feet into liquid tree rubber, permanent personalized footwear becomes all the rage as the decade comes to a close. With the world continuing its frenetic modern pace, any hack that will save a little time becomes a cause celebre, and in the inflation-crazy economic environment of 2029, the thought of no more shelling out moolah for socks and sneakers is quite appealing. Only when the yellow festering sores of toenail rot set in does the fad begin to ebb. Styrofoam is back, and not just for hats. Come 2031, it's all the rage as a dessert topping, as a thrill-seeking public continues its intellectual and moral decline into a subhuman state. What began as an internet meme first evolves into a public health concern, and then into a new source of delicious crunchy sprinkles for ice cream and cupcakes. And that, my friends, is what the future holds in store for us, for now. Okay, welcome to the It Stinks department. It Stinks! That's right. We uh, we watched a show, a little show from the early '90s, mm. called The Critic. Dude, I was so excited when you said this, but I became more excited the moment I hit play on the episode because <laughs> this has one of the greatest theme songs of all time. First off, it's a great theme song made by somebody who's gone on to do some pretty awesome theme songs. Isn't it by, um, what's his face? Like Werner Herzog? Who's the guy who does all the, the Christopher Nolan soundtracks? Seal. Kiss from a Rose, right? From Batman? <laughs> no, the Joker dance. It was Prince. Prince did it. <laughs> I'm going to have to look it up in a moment. But when I turned on and heard that theme song, I was like instantly transported back to when I was a little kid. And I would watch the show late at night on syndication, which... I don't know. I didn't think it was on long enough to be syndicated, but like Fox would keep playing it as part of like a late night type of thing. I had this old camping television that was like a foot tall, like deep, that I wedged in between my bed and the wall. And so at night, I would turn the volume down really low and put a blanket over my head and over this TV and just stay up for hours watching The Critic and news radio. But that soundtrack, that opening theme song, brought me right back to that moment, man. It was almost overwhelming. Awesome. So actually, what I wanted to ask you was, when did you first encounter The Critic? So you kind of answered that there. <laughs> but you also made me think about those little TVs. And yeah. I, too, had a little TV that I would try to watch TV on at night. But mine was did not get a very good reception. So it's like the only thing I could watch at night was, for some reason, the Canadian RoboCop TV show. 
that was on all the time. It was awful. Uh, and usually I would turn it on and be like, this is not worth staying up and watching TV over. But uh, I, I was interested to find out if you had watched it in syndication or when it was on live, because for me, I saw it when it first came on. I remember it, it came out in 1994. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I'd been a huge fan of The Simpsons for, I guess, five years at that point. And uh, I was just so psyched for the critic. And I watched it when it's on. And uh, it was uh, not easy because it was like jumping around from networks and time slots. But I couldn't get enough of it. And then it ended after two seasons. And I basically never saw it again. Apparently it was syndicated in the early 2000s on some Canadian channels. But I wasn't watching TV really at that point. So it was really interesting to go back. But uh, I had a kind of a different feeling about what I would think about the show watching it as an adult. Well, what do you mean? Well, as a kid, I was like, I couldn't get enough of it. It was just like more Simpsons, basically. It was like another cartoon show. Because at the time, there were really no other mature primetime animated shows. Like they, there'd been a couple attempts like Fish Police and Capital Critters that did like, you know, half a season. And, you know, they were junk. And Beavis yeah. and Butthead, I guess. Duckman? Duckman came out a little bit later, I think. I think Duckman oh, okay. came out maybe the next year or a year later, right. um, which I love Duckman. The creator of Duckman is one of the designers on this show, I believe. All right. Anyway, yeah, I totally loved it and I ate it up. But kind of what I've heard about the critic, like the sort of behind the scenes design of it. And it is kind of an ugly show, you know, especially in that first season. It, like the characters don't really fit together very nice. It's almost like it's made by committee. In fact, if you watch the DVD extra making of the critic, I can't remember if it's Mike Reese or who's the other guy? Al Jean. Yeah, Al Jean that says like, well, you know, it wasn't designed by committee. You know, it was more like designed by like a group of people that decided things <laughs> together. <laughs> Things didn't quite fit together. Like one guy designed the critic character himself. That's David Silverman. Which, by the way, if you look at David Silverman, he looks a lot like the critic. At least the <laughs> headshot that I saw is like, really, that's a self-insert. <laughs> that's a strange one to tie your face to. So he designed the character, and then it was Rich Moore and David Cutler, who both sort of worked on Disney movies. Either they did before or they did after. Uh, and then Everett Peck, who was the uh, Duckman guy. Yeah. And you can really see his style in uh, Vlada, the restaurant owner character. Yes, actually. Like that yeah, character yeah. really doesn't fit. That yeah. character looks like it fits in Duckman, but not on this show. You know, it's funny because like I watch very few things with a discerning eye. It's mostly, is it entertaining? Is it fun? Is it funny? And I don't look beyond it. So I never really considered that sort of, I guess, like the language of the design of each of the characters. Well, and this is what I'm getting at is that when I was a kid, I certainly didn't. I was just like, I wanted more of this. And, uh, you know, I also watched Saturday Night Live. So it's like John Lovitz. It was like that was another draw as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, having heard about the critic for all these years, you know, my my sort of preconceived notion going in was basically that there was too many cooks in the kitchen. Also, there was a lot of like network pressure and it's like, who's the show for? So it's kind of like, um, I think it was on ABC, right? Yeah, it started on ABC one season one season on Fox. Yeah, and so it was kind of like doing almost like The Simpsons, but instead of it doing it for Fox's like low-class garbage audience, they were doing it for like their sort of more highbrow, uh, you know, urban liberal audience maybe. And so I think there was a lot of like pressure there for like what they were going to do with the show. Yeah, ABC at the time was 94, I'm pretty sure they were still doing TGIF. 
right? Like, thank okay. God it's Friday. And it was like this whole lineup on Fridays of sitcoms. Cloyingly sweet, anodyne, just the Melba toast of TV. Very plain. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that speaks to a certain kind of, you know, affluent audience where you want to, like, have that American dream, innocent children kind of feel. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that with The Critic, it wasn't originally intended to be an animated show. The idea came first and then it became an animated show kind of by necessity. So, you know, all these factors come together in a way that, you know, you think it wouldn't work. But uh, after watching these, uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm kind of stuck and... on something now and I'm interrupting you because this is important. So am I to understand you maybe saw some of it when it first aired, but this is like your first viewing. I think I've seen a few episodes over the years, just like randomly. But yeah, this is my first reviewing of it um, since 1994, like 30 years ago, basically. Holy smokes. All right. Yeah, because yeah, this is like <laughs> I went into it with so much nostalgia because I've seen every single episode multiple times. Well, I have that nostalgia, but it's nostalgia purely is something that I experienced when I was a child, when I was 12 years yeah. old or whatever, when it came out. I think that's why I came in kind of skeptical, because a lot of times things that you like when you're a kid, when you revisit them, they're not good. And you yeah. can either like enjoy them because it's pure nostalgia and you're like, oh, I love this when I was a kid because you love everything when you're a kid. But a lot of times I find when I look back, I'm like, oh, this is trash. <laughs> like, I don't want to watch this. <laughs> but that's not how I feel about The Critic when I watch it. I actually really like laughed quite a bit. And from the opening, I was kind of thinking like, uh, this is not going to be as good as uh, I remembered it. But, you know, it was quite good. And I actually like jokes were coming back to me and stuff. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So should we, you want to talk about one of the episodes? two of them yeah so we watched the first two episodes i know the first one's i think it's called pilot so i'm assuming it is the pilot it is the pilot title pilot which is brilliant but i guess when you're making a pilot you know you don't put all your eggs in the basket so should we should we say what the show's about first maybe the show the critic is about this um chubby little bald man he is both overly confident and paralyzingly a boob Yes. Well, and also, but he struggles with confidence, too. Like, he has very low self-value, but he's also a snob. He's the John Lovitz character, basically. Yes. And that's what he was written to be. Like, John Lovitz insisted he doesn't look like John Lovitz. It was part of the design was that he doesn't look like him. It is a character that's written for him. And that sort of, like, cockiness, but also, like, being pathetic and then he's like an award-winning intellectual <laughs> film critic, but he's also like dumb and everyone hates him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the first episode, and I'm pretty sure the entire series is just filled with contradictions. I mean, yes, because he is an idiot that has nobody respects, and yet he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning film critic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and he's got like really witty, intelligent jokes and sort of highbrow sort of references a lot of the time. And he's got a TV show. It's called Coming Attractions. And so there he's got his boss. Yeah, Duke Phillips. And it's a, a, a character like a Turner. I think it's like based on Ted Turner. Masculine Southern guy who's like... <laughs> <laughs> well at one point he goes no you're you're not supposed to criticize the films you're supposed to say that they're good or they're great <laughs> jay says something like what if they what if they're terrible that's what good's for yeah so he's kind of like the eccentric ultra masculine billionaire and then his uh sort of stylist there who's doris grossman yeah 
the joke is like she's like she smokes and she's impossibly old and she's one of those old hollywood types like yeah like the blue collar the people behind the scenes who are just like blue collar doing the jobs yeah but she talks like this you know she's got that kind of voice and she kind of hates jay you did that on purpose so what if i did i'm union he goes to a, like a restaurant where he hangs out where there's this Vlada character. He's kind of a really strange, like vaguely Eastern European character. And they always kind of play up how slimy he is. Hello, Vlada. My usual table? Certainly, Mr. Sherman. But first, I must remove these street urchins that followed you in. Go there. Sure. No, no, they're with me. I thought he was supposed to be Asian. I don't think so, no. His name is Vlada Veramirovich. So I'm assuming he's supposed to be like vaguely like Eastern European, you know, Russian, Ukrainian. But Russia is in Asia, bro. I guess. But usually when you say Asia, you know, you're talking about China or more Asian. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> bro, like, and, and my comment is going to get us canceled. <laughs> Look, I'm just talking about colloquially. I'm not the one who described him as Asian. Oh, good point. <laughs> I was trying to be more specific. Vaguely Eastern European. <laughs> and then there's there's Jeremy Hawk. I love the Jeremy Hawk character. He's like the again a very masculine Australian actor. He's like half Mel Gibson, uh, half who's a crocodile Dundee guy. I was trying to think of it, and I just know him as Crocodile. Dundee. Something Hogan, isn't it? Paul Hogan. Paul, Paul Hogan. Hogan. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Mr. Hawk, could I have your autograph? I just loved you in Crocodile Gandhi. You see. People did like that picture. I'm sorry. I just didn't think you made a very convincing Mahatma. I will bring peace between the Hindu and the Muslim. But first, a tasteful glimpse of me bottom for the ladies. So he's got a kid, Marty Sherman, uh, who's like the kind of a bit of a like a Bobby Hill type character. Yeah, he has like a perm. Yeah, he's got a perm, but otherwise he looks exactly like Jay, basically. And he's kind of like a good kid, but he's got a lot of um, baggage. And like Jay is divorced from his wife who like really hates him. <laughs> and so there's a lot of jokes about that. Now, son. You may just have noticed there was a beautiful woman in my bed. I won't tell anyone. Actually, I wish you would tell everyone, particularly your mother and her personal trainer, Alberto. He says I should call him Uncle Al now. That's crazy. Why should you do that? Because he's such a great guy and I like him so much. Ugh. And then his family. He's got his family, too. So there's his dad, Franklin Sherman, who, like, as a kid, this was, like, my favorite character. As an yes. adult, I don't really care for this character so much in the episodes that I've seen. Jay's adopted, mm -hmm. and his parents uh, are, like, ultra-blue-blood wasp, wealthy New Yorker they, types. They talk in that sort of, like, mid-Atlantic accent that, like, Audrey Hepburn used, right? So Frank, it's Franklin Sherman. He's always got, like, a smoking jacket. He's totally crazy. He's got all these non-sequiturs. Oh, son, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Who are all you people? Then there's his mother, that's uh, Eleanor Sherman. And she's kind of like a bit of the uh, mother from Arrested Development, um, Lucille Bluth. Yeah. A little bit like that, but a little bit... Less sadistic. Uh, can't one dinner go by where we don't talk about your rotting corpse? And uh, then his sister, uh, Margot Sherman, who she's just kind of like nice and she loves him. She is the normal one in the family. Welcome to our crappy family. I think that's all the main characters. Yeah. And that's basically the premise. It's Jay Sherman. He's running his show. He's trying to be a good dad. And he's looking for love. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and that's kind of the show, it seems like. Yeah, one of the cool things about the show, and I think one of the things that made it successful are the cues it took from The Simpsons. Like The Simpsons had mm-hmm. that opening couch gag every single time. With The Critic, there is the ongoing gag of him being awoken by like a phone call. Usually, I think it's always bad news. And then at the end of the opening credits, he has a movie satire and he invariably determines that this movie stinks. It stinks. <laughs> yeah, and there's also another one at the end as well. If you watch through the credits, I don't know if you ever did. Uh, but if you watch through the credits, at the very end of the credits, the usher comes over to him and says, Sir, the show is over. And then he has a line. Like in one, he says, uh, Is the snack bar still open? <laughs> so they, they did some of that stuff. And yeah, I agree. I think the, the more Simpsons-like stuff of this show is the best stuff of this show, for sure. There's There's kind of like a proto-family guy quality to it. Oh, I'm so glad you said I was going to bring that up. The references. Where family the guy likes to do the thing where it's like, you know, oh, it's like that time I had a lemonade stand with uh, Al Jaffe and uh, Al Jolson. And then they cut to that that bit. I don't know. (laughs) 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 Yeah, this show does it a bit, too. Um, And they even do that one like near the end of this first episode where they just slip into Beauty and the Beast. Uh, We'll talk about that later. Okay, so I don't really enjoy that humor so much. I think at the time it was more exciting and it was new and it was like a way to get more jokes in. So it was kind of upping the ante. But I I feel like in the time since Family Guy has really pounded that into the ground. Yeah, well, I think they do two things that are slightly different. One is it's like it's slightly more subdued in that, you know, Family Guy at a certain point, I think they like built up to this level of references that the audience is just inundated with them and it became like difficult to watch or just absurd on its face and the other thing is you might disagree with this and remind me of something that totally negates what i'm about to say they're not total non sequiturs like it's not entirely nonsense what they're referencing yeah i mean it's done a little bit more sparingly and a little bit more charmingly and also it's blazing the way for that type of humor So I think it kind of gets a pass. But initially when I saw some of that early on in the episode, this was still kind of like making me feel a little wary about the show and rewatching it. Now, you you brought up something and I hushed you just moments ago, which was this. Yeah, and then you brought up something from the next episode. So I feel like that was a little unfair. I wasn't going to call you out for it on air, but now I am actually now that I think about it. (laughs) Well, that was that was accidental what I just did. The. The King Dork reference yeah. at the beginning, <laughs> his automobile gets spray painted King Dork. Uh, and this like hard nosed uh, beauty hairstylist is the one that told him, you know, she's spraying black spray yeah. paint on his head. Some kids were painting King Dork on your car with it. <laughs> and I, I absolutely loved in that episode the way they carried that joke along all the way to the end when... They have this montage of him and this woman dancing, and it's like a recreation of the scene in Beauty and the Beast, all the way down to like that kind of early 3D animation that they used mm-hmm. in Beauty and the Beast. And they're singing the song, you know, Beauty what is and it? King Dork. Beauty and King Dork. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, like, when I first saw that scene, I was like, oh my God, this is what this show is going to be like. Because, you know, it just goes on and on. But at the end of it, he's dancing with this woman. He's sort of like dreaming it and he sings, 
Beauty and King Dork. What did you say? John Lovitz just makes it work, you know? Like, that's the thing about this show, is that a lot of the delivery wouldn't work if it was anybody else. Like, the timing is a little bit weird. Everything's a little bit weird. It's all kind of uncanny. But so's John Lovitz. John Lovitz is like an uncanny person. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so he, he it does make it work, in a way. So the show does manage to, like, sort of bring it around. Maybe we should just mention what the plot of this first episode is, because it's kind of the perfect plot for the pilot episode. Like, it's the perfect scenario for the character. Yeah, it, I think it establishes him really well in his world and then also all of these characters and how they interact with him really well. So he, he is the movie reviewer and he has a guest on. Valerie Fox. Valerie Fox, who's this like up and coming actress. And, you know, they have some witty repartee on camera during his show and they proceed to date. And so he's he's like falling in love with her. She's falling in love with him. But the catch is that he hasn't seen her movie yet. Uh, her yeah. movie hasn't come out. And so is she flirting with him so that he'll give her a good review? And that's sort of like what everyone thinks. Because she's like really hot and he's like, you know, Kafka-esque. <laughs> so it's a good premise because it's like, is, is, is he going to give her a good review? So Because he's falling in love. Is he going to stand by his principles if yeah. the movie's not good? Maybe the movie will be good, you know, but you kind of know that's not going to happen because every movie stinks. It stinks. What's cool about it for character building perspective, you, you get all of these hints about how he is kind of slimy and he's willing to sort of like bend in his own morals and principles. But then is he willing to to do that that one thing, which is to give an insincere review? That's the one thing he can never do. You know, that's the thing about about him is that he is a film lover and that's like the most defining feature about him. And so everything sort of revolves around that. And the movie's even called Kiss of Death. So he's bringing her around and he br brings Valerie to meet his family. And he has the best line. Margot, this is Valerie. She loves me. He just says it in such a funny way. Like, <laughs> just as an aside, it's so perfect they're really playing with this all the way through like does she really love him and everything that they show you says yes she loves him for who he is yeah everything's going great and then finally he decides i'm not going to go to the movie i'm going to i'm going to say i was sick so i can't see the movie i can't review it but they send over a screener copy and of course it's awful come on baby give me a kiss oh I'll give you a kiss, all right. A kiss of death! Hachi, machi! Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> One might even say, it stinks. It stinks! Yes. <laughs> and that's what Jay does. Jay says it. He, he comes clean. He's like, and it's like this very sweet moment where he's like, it's like he's talking to her. She's a beautiful girl and she tries her best. But God bless her sweet face. She just wasn't very good this time. But... Many actresses started badly and got better. Brilliant, even. Sally Field, Cher, um, those adorable Olsen twins on Full House. Oh. Because he doesn't want to break her heart with this, but he has to be honest. And she says, nuts to you, pal. <laughs> <laughs> you're short, you're fat, and even for a film critic, you're ugly. And it seems like she was playing them all along. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and now she's extra mad because she's like 
she's like degraded herself <laughs> with this like Ooh. this mole man. He's a Pulitzer um, Prize winner. <laughs> well, that should have been her first red flag. <laughs> so I didn't really love this first episode, but it did get a few good chuckles out of me, knowing that this is like the 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 pilot. You sort of give it a little more leeway. I listen. I you're going to be hard pressed to hear me say anything negative about the critic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did enjoy it. Like I'm looking forward to seeing more. So uh, should we move on to the next episode, or do we have anything else to say about the first episode? No, let's talk about that next episode. Um, titled Marty's First Date. So this was like a Marty episode, like Jay's son. Yeah. And it begins, it has a great joke at the beginning where Jay visits his ex-wife to pick up uh, his son for career day. And she peeps through the peephole. And it's like this hilarious, exaggerated you know, image of Jay Sherman, like his big nose is up front. You know, the way you look through like a like a convex lens. Yeah. And then she opens the door and he's exactly that. <laughs> they do that. They did that in the first episode, too, with like him getting really close to Valerie Fox. And... Ah! Sorry. I love the way yeah. they, they play with his <laughs> grotesque visage. Like he's not in easy shape to like draw it from different angles, you know, like everything about him is unpleasant. Like he's got that low sloping forehead, <laughs> you know, his pupils are too small and he's this kind of squat shape. <clears throat> so you really can kind of play with him when you show him from a different angle like that. Yeah. Um, but I really, I really dug that joke. And so they go to Marty's school, the United Nations private school whose motto is teaching brotherhood and tolerance to those who can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's also, uh, when they show up, there's like a Woody Allen joke. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sun Yi, I... What's he game? He says, Sun Yi, I'm sorry, I didn't know she was your sister. <laughs> uh, well, this one, Jay's like, oh, are you here for parent-teacher day two? And he's like, oh, I thought it was the prom. <laughs> <laughs> And he kind of shuffles off. Chaplin-esque. Yeah, yeah, like the kind of vaudeville thing. He falls into a sewer. No! Glad he's getting back to physical stick. <laughs> what joke am I thinking of with the Sunni one? Because that was... I think that was in the last episode. That's in the first episode, I think. Oh, okay. So they're really just hammering him. What did I do to deserve this? All right. Okay, so Marty, Marty's going to the school at the UN. He falls in love. We get two love stories back to back. Yeah, father son. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Um, and he's he's fallen in love with a, uh, a Cuban girl, a Cubana. Is that what they say? I don't know what they say, but her name is Carmen. Like the opera. She doesn't want anything to do with him. Oh, but there is actually a couple jokes that I liked that I think sort of come up later. So when they're in the uh, classroom, Jay, uh, it's because it's Parent Teacher Day, he boasts that his show is broadcasted in 11 different languages. Uh, and one kid says, In Mexico, your behavior frightens us. So the station runs a disclaimer that you have escaped from a mental hospital. And then the kid from Tahiti says, In my country, you bear a strange resemblance to Bumbar, the god of flatulence. <laughs> yes, it's a great job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of those will come back later. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And Jay also sets up a running joke that I remember shows up in future episodes where all of his clothes are promo merch for movies. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he pulls up his pant legs and shows his socks, and one says, my left foot, and the other says, tootsie. <laughs> and I think that's a recurring joke where it's like everything he's got is like a piece of schlock. Yeah. Yeah, so he encourages his son to like ask Carmen out and to go on a date, right? Yes, in the lunchroom. And it's going to be some type of trope, that idea of like, you know, your buddy goes on a date and you whisper into his ear all of the things that he ought to do. Well, at first, she doesn't want anything to do with him. Yeah. And uh, then an international food fight breaks out. But Marty is able to endear himself to Carmen by escorting her to the Swiss table where they'll be safe because they're He protects her, yes. Yeah. And so she's impressed with his bravery and gives him a chance. And then sort of the next part is where Jay Sherman is trying to, like, impart some dating wisdom. And there's also a good joke where they're in the park playing baseball and he knocks a baseball through the window of uh, the, the, the church window. And, like, a cardinal sticks his head out and he's got, like, the hat and, like, the, the stick with the cross. Yo, hooligans, this window costs $753 million. <laughs> Everyone runs away. <laughs> So they go to a movie. Um, th I think this is one that I really like. It's a pretty simple one where uh, they're in line at the movies and Jay says, uh, at last I'm getting out of my ivory tower and seeing a movie with the common man. <laughs> and some guy just says, hey, aren't you that loudmouth on channel 57? And just punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like nothing happened. It's like you can tell it's like, oh, this happens all the time to Jay Sherman. <laughs> just, he just gets punched in the face constantly. <laughs> I do. One of my favorite parts is how matter-of-factly he handles great humiliation or, you know, denigration. You know, like, like somebody punching him in the face. It's not played up. It's just like it's always, well, this is just what happens. <laughs> yeah, he's used to it by now. <laughs> so they, they're trying to decide what film to see, and Jay talks him into seeing The Red Balloon. And he sings, like, I love French films to the tune of Alouetta. I like French films, pretentious, boring French films. I like French films, three tickets, see vous play. And then he gets punched in the face again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so he convinces him to see The Red Balloon, which is like the 1956 French film. You know, it's yeah. kind of like one of the canonical films in film history. Yeah, I saw um, that in elementary school. Uh, and then in the theaters... Uh, Marty impresses uh, Carmen with his ability to like play the candy box like a kazoo. <laughs> Where'd you learn that? And he says he learned it from his dad, and it cuts over to Jay, and he's playing Ava Nagila. <laughs> and there's a bunch of Hasidic Jews that are like dancing. <laughs> but it turns out the film isn't The Red Balloon, it's The Red Balloon 2. Revenge of the Balloon, <laughs> <laughs> which is like uh, it's one part Die Hard and like one part like a Steven Seagal film. <laughs> yeah, Steven Seagal is in it. And so she doesn't want anything to do with them anymore. No, no. <laughs> so Carmen leaves the country <laughs> because of the date, because he asks his parents, he's like, is it because of me? It's because of me, isn't it? No, it's not. Yes, it is. You're right. It is you. We were just trying to be diplomatic. We are diplomats. Uh, and, uh, like, Marty even shows up as she's leaving. Like, he's bought a present for her, um, yeah. which we're sort of led to believe is weather stripping. 
weather stripping, and I've been losing 40% of my heat through corner seals and molding. Come here, you practical boy. So he stows away on the plane, they go to Cuba, but his gift actually does win her over because it's the little holders on your glasses, on your nose, a little nose piece that holds your yeah. glasses up. And in Cuba, according to Carmen, the factory closed down and you can't get them because of the American embargo. <laughs> then there's a scene where the, the pilot's flying the plane and his glasses keep falling down and the plane <laughs> keeps dropping in altitude. <laughs> And it's it's a really great example of them like bringing a joke from the start of the show all the way to the end, just like with yeah. King Dork, which I loved. Well, this like her glasses keep sliding down onto her nose and she's pushing them up and he's like, oh, that's so, you know, I, I like the way you do that. That's very cute or something. I actually don't remember this episode very well. I did watch it twice, actually. <laughs> so I'm a little bit worried. But anyway, so and of course, then it carries on and that's the gift he gets her. I don't know. It's yeah. very well written. So he gets there. Jay goes to try to rescue Marty from Cuba because Marty's just kind of left to Cuba. And he can't get there legally. He's got to marry a Cuban citizen. And at one point, someone calls the cops on him because they think he's that lunatic from TV <laughs> that I mentioned earlier. <laughs> and there's a good joke where they're like dragging him off. They're like, we throw our lunatics out to sea on a boat. And it cuts over to this boat. And it's all these like crazy people jumping around it's like it's like a, all this chaos and he goes oh no wait that's carnival cruises our boat's over there and it's like a luxury <laughs> spa with like nice uh sort of like morning music playing over top and uh, so jay eventually does like a visa marriage to get into yes. cuba and finds out that marty is like doing really well with uh carmen he gets a kiss from carmen turns out her grandfather is uh fidel castro who uh jay sherman uh pisses off by saying who died and made you el presidente <laughs> <laughs> he's like batista <laughs> yeah, exactly well earlier when they're at the cuban embassy there's a sign that says cuba hating america since 1959 <laughs> and uh, the, the episode ends with jay sherman in front of a firing squad yeah and he says, Before you shoot, you should know I gave thumbs up to the Mambo Kings. Hooray! <laughs> so presumably he doesn't get shot. And that's the end of the second episode. Much better than the first episode, I think. I don't know. I, I, I do think I liked that, the first episode, better. I don't know why. I think it was, maybe I was just riding that high of nostalgia. And uh, maybe it wore off just a titch into that second that episode. That could be. But. I we still can have different it. vibes going in. Like you're coming in like nostalgia and like loving it, and I'm coming into it apprehensive. But uh, I really enjoyed it. I still stand by that the uh, I don't think it's a very good looking show. You know, there are things I like about it. I love the music. I like the the New York setting is fun. Yeah. Um, I just feel like the characters aren't quite cohesive, and yeah. it feels like there's too many cooks in the kitchen. But overall, I really enjoyed the humor. I love John Lovitz's performance, and I can't wait to watch some more. Yeah, I, I guess I can see what you're talking about with, you know, if you compare it to something like Family Guy or The Simpsons, there's a very distinct design language for those. Yeah. And they all do feel like they are in the exact same world. There's something charming about this and all of the characters' designs. And I don't know, it just doesn't affect me in the least. I just love every one of them. Like that Vlad guy, I love that he looks so fucked up. Yeah, See, like I feel this... like he doesn't, they don't look fucked up enough. That's the problem is like, he looks so fucked up, but still trying, like they're trying to make it look like, like they all fit together. And I feel like that's where it doesn't work. Where something yeah. like Duckman, it all fits together, 
but it's the characters are very disparate like and very weird so you have characters who are like pigs and characters who are like you know very human-like characters and characters that look like vlad and all sorts of different things and it all kind of comes together in one package that's more interesting whereas like this you've got that kind of effect but that's not the vibe they're going for they're going for this like you know, Woody Allen film, New York, uh, aspirational sort of lifestyle show in a way. Huh? No way. Yeah, because like it's, you know, uh, he's like a, an intellectual, a New York intellectual. He makes like over $200,000 a year, we find out, yeah. uh, doing his like TV show where he watches movies and he's got rich parents. And like, even though he's like a boob, as I mentioned, you know, he's still rich and he has all of these like trappings of like upper class uh lifestyle you know yeah and i feel like that's part of it that's like the woody allen sort of aesthetic right it's like all these like people with like big apartments in new york and living in manhattan and going to restaurants and stuff and having these sort of like intellectual conversations yeah but it's like it's mocking that they are kind of mocking that sort of like lifestyle to a certain degree but they're also like they're using that aesthetic and they're it's not always to mock it. A lot of it is just like, it's out of like that sort of like love for that sort of New York scene, you know, like all the like backgrounds and the color palettes and everything is all sort of like evoking that sort of uh, vibe. Okay. So maybe how like Mad Magazine, especially in like the sixties and seventies would make references that were very New York references. Like even I guess even in the eighties they would do that where they would reference like restaurants that were big Except in New York. With Mad Magazine, especially with Mad the comic book, the the New York references were to like a lower class ethnic sort of lifestyle, right? Like you look at something like Starchy and it's yeah. like he lives in this sort of ethnic community in like a basement with like you know, to answer the phone he's gotta like fight off like fifty people to get to the payphone that's in the like above the sub basement behind the store or whatever. Like it's poverty is what's sort of being evoked. Whereas the uh Archie comics that they're satirizing are all set in middle class white suburbia. So Starchy reveals hypocrisy in the text in a way that the critic does not. You know, it makes New York jokes and evokes the Woody Allen aesthetic, but doesn't really challenge the source material, you know? It kind of revels in it. All right. I guess, listen, I'm going to have to start learning more about New York. Well, that's something that I kind of made me interested. Like when they hit the, uh, when they break the window in the church, I actually went, tried to see like, I wonder if that's like a specific church, you know? Yeah, like probably on, uh, Central if it's Park on Manhattan, Saint, probably St. Patrick's Cathedral. If it's yeah, probably. Manhattan. There was a bunch there, I but I couldn't find the exact window, so I was like, I don't know. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, that's just kind of my complaint. I don't think the show looks great. I think the show has a lot of missteps, but it's saved. It's ultimately saved by the writing. But like the whole conception was, the show was not conceived of as an animated show, and they had a concept from the beginning that they didn't want the animation to overwhelm the writing. You know, yeah. like they wanted a very subdued show that was basically like could have been live action, you know? The writing is brilliant. I can't imagine this as a, a live action show. The writing is brilliant. But as you talked about before, John Lovett's cadence is so amazing. And it actually reminds like you have, um, who's that guy? Christopher Walken. Like everybody yeah. loves the way he speaks. 
John Lovitz has to have like an equally uh, idiosyncratic way of speaking, right? There's something about him where he's like, he's a snob, but he's pathetic. He gets no respect. He's sleazy. You know, yeah. he's selfish. Um, he's a bit of a like Better Call Saul type character almost in a way. Oh, absolutely. Like, more pathetic. Yeah. Less capable. <laughs> yeah. Hey, are we going to do this again in a couple weeks? This show, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you mean more critic? Yeah, more critic. No. We'll definitely do <laughs> yes, some more, more critic, critic down the road. I don't want to become yeah. the critic podcast, but uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely want to do some more critic uh, down the road. And we'll be able to, to nail it quicker because we won't have to go through what the show's all about. So uh, how would you rate this show? Oh, I didn't even think about that. All right, I'm going to try to put like my nostalgia... I'm going to try to be objective. I would say this show is 3.75. What do I use? Liters. Quartz. I used quartz of chicken fat. Like in a watch. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 3.75 quartz quartz of chicken fat. Well, uh, I can sum my opinion of the show up in two words. It stinks. It stinks. (laughs) All right, here we are at the Tips for Twits department. So uh, do you have any tips for these twits? Yeah, I do. Um, now, longtime listeners of the podcast will know that I talked about this desire in the Wordly Desires department of a Mars Attacks book, like a large coffee table book. And I talked about how there there is a book like it, but not quite like it, I said. And um, I wanted to find out. So I ordered it. I ordered the um, the Tops Mars Attacks 50th Anniversary Collection, and it's um, it has every single Mars Attacks card from the original series, the 1962, I believe it was 62, um, all the way up to like those like uh, anniversary ones that they put out. This is not the book that I wanted, and um, so I I feel vindicated in my Wordly Desires Department list. It is really cool. They are like nice scans of the artwork, but they do some things that are kind of weird. Like rather than, you know, books traditionally in the Western world, read left to right. And on the left-hand side, they have the back of the card. And then on the Mm -hmm. right-hand side, they have the front of the card. And so that seems backwards to me. That seems like a narrative way of doing it. Like they're trying to mimic like a story where you well, have the text on that side and the picture on the other. Yes. And as most, maybe you don't know, um, but on the back of all of the Mars Attacks cards, there is a narrative. There's like this ongoing story. Um, they aren't exactly connected because you kids would just get the cards randomly in the packages, but it tells part of what is happening on Earth when Mars attacks. So I understand that, but it's like these cards are visual. Right? Like that's, yeah. that's the cool part of the cards. So to me, it seems like that should be inverted, but they do. It's a very brief write up of the history and how everything came to be. And then every single page with the original cards, they have like a little bit more, like some fun facts sprinkled out for all of the cards. So while this is not the book that I wanted, I'm glad I picked it up. It was like 25 bucks. I've had $25 worth of entertainment um, with it. It's a, a fun one to just flip through and read. I got my kids the Garbage Pail Kids one. They do, like, I think the first two series. Oh, yeah? 
yeah, they, they love it. They've gone back to it a couple of times, just going through and looking at all the grotesque drawings by my kid would love that. Um, yeah. his favorite thing to do is like go on my computer and go to free sound and listen to farts. <laughs> <laughs> What's free sound. Oh, it's just like a, a sound download site. Oh, it's just a, sounds. It's a fart database. Well, they have a lot of farts on there, but they have other things. Elevators. Yeah. Um, what other sounds does our show use? <laughs> 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 um, so I do have some questions about that. Yeah. Are, they're at one-to-one -one scale. They're like exactly the size of the cards. No, they aren't. And I mean, that's sort of what bothers me because it's like you're enlarging them already. Why not make them super big? Yeah, they're, they are larger, like maybe 25% larger okay. than the original cards. And it's got the full series in it. Has the full series and then subsequent series. Uh, I don't know, with modern artists. I don't know. I, I, I wasn't familiar with the 90s one. But you have, like, I think, like, Simon Bisley and stuff. Like, some pretty cool 90s artists okay. doing some of this stuff. It doesn't capture that same fun. But they also have some of the original pencils and, like, concept art okay, done by, fun. like, Wally Wood. And Do you have the set of these cards? I don't have a complete set. I have a bunch, though. Yeah, I have some. Okay. They're expensive. That's the only problem. Because it does seem like it's a book that's designed for people who maybe just want the images and don't want to have to go track down, like, the cards or whatever. The one thing I do know about that series is always, like, sort of... I thought was a clever touch is that the the book jacket is like that looks like that wax paper of the cards they they did with the design of this such a good job and yeah. i wasn't going to bring it up because i didn't know i don't know i didn't want to go into too much detail but yeah the dust cover for this they gave it like the texture of that wax paper that they would wrap the cards in and the inside is like extra waxy so it feels like smooth and is really glossy so okay they kind of capture that, which is really, really fun. Um, and then when you take the dust jacket off on the front cover, there's a picture of the, <laughs> the bubble gum. And then on the back cover, it's the same bubble gum, but it's smashed because it's nice. so brittle. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it does seem like a really nice design. I've seen it come up. I know it's not very expensive. I'm probably more interested in the Garbage Pail Kids, I think, than Mars Attacks. Yeah. Um, but I would be interested in both. Did you give it a, did you give it a rating? Uh, no, I didn't give it a rating. I mean, I would All say right. if, if you have an interest in Mars Attacks, Garbage Field Kids, or I think they did a Wacky Packages one. All I think all of these were put together by John Pound, who worked on uh, Garbage Pail Kids and maybe yeah. Wacky Packages. He put them together. He did a fantastic job. Except for the text thing. Except for the text and the size. Like, How would you handle the text? Would you have put the text behind the cards? Like you turn the page and then you read the text? No, I would I would just swap the order. I would just do have the the image on the left and then the text on the right. I feel like that would be more awkward. I don't know. I every time though, I I found myself. This is why this is the problem with it. It's like as I was reading it because I care more about the visuals than the story. Yeah, I would find myself looking to the right first and then going back over to the left to read the text. Yeah, I don't see what the problem is there. I feel like that's what the intention is. So, like no, it's that, unnatural. This, because when no, you open what's unnatural a book, is to have the image on the left. Like, so what's natural is to open the book and the image is right there looking at you on like the solid form, you know? But 
it's still looking at you. And the way that our, we're trained when reading is to start on the left and go to the right. Yeah, but not with an image. Not like if you open any kind of like art book or anything, any kind of art book, most of them are going to have the images facing there. And if they have anything on the other page, it might be like the information. What? Yeah, I would say it's pretty standard. Okay, um, well, bo or, well, here's the problem though with that is that both of them are technically images, but one is an image with text. See, I wonder if you'd feel different if instead of photographing the back, they had just like transposed the text and then maybe included like some production images or something underneath that. No, that would make me more mad. I want the back of it as a photo. Hmm. I mean, I'm telling you, like most art books are going to be laid out like that. Well, that's great. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's your rating here? I, well, now, now you got me, my heels dug in. So it's all right. Well, here, why don't I grab an art book off my shelf? No, we'll you're, you're not going to help the, the John Pound's review on this. Um, I've got erotic art of the masters. <laughs> <laughs> That's always close at hand. Um, I would say if you if you are into Mars Attacks or Wacky Packages or uh, Garbage Pail Kids, they're definitely worth picking up. It's like 25 bucks, I guess, is, a, I would say, a little steep. Try to get it on sale. I think it's a fun thing to just sort of like lay on the couch and look through you're dancing around the chicken fat here i do you're gonna make me do a review you didn't do, well, give a rating on 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 critics that's not tips for twits if that was tips for twits i wouldn't have gone out on it stinks it stinks but this is tips for twits you need to give a rating this is a consumer information program all right uh three uh, three quarts of chicken fat Okay, so we got a lukewarm review from Patrick here. <laughs> but I like it. Oh. I do like it. But it's three. You just wish it was bigger is the main thing. It's not what I wanted, yeah. Would you be able to overlook the layout if the images were large? I might actually, yeah. What do you got? I've got a tip for twits. Um, it's actually been a while since I read this, but I looked at my shelf for something to recommend. And this, this jumped out at me. It is, is this guy for real? The Unbelievable Andy Kaufman by Box Brown. And uh, the thing is, I don't care about Andy Kaufman. I don't have any interest in Andy Kaufman. I didn't really like the Jim Carrey movie. I don't dislike him, but I, he, I don't get him. You know, he doesn't. I've never seen anything that's been like, this guy's great. But Box Brown, he managed to like interest me. You know, for one, his sort of simple uh, diagrammatic style uh, is very What's conducive. What's that word mean? Like a diagram, like very clean oh. line. Yeah, like a diagram, di diagrammatic. You know, it's very conducive to this kind of like biographical and the history stories that he's trying to tell. So it's got this kind of childish whimsy to it, but it's very consistent uh, and structured with these sort of machine perfect lines and like geometric compositions. Oh. So it's like a very simple way of drawing, but it's, it's uh, very effective and uh, very well put together. I've actually read three of his other books. So I read Andre the Giant, which is like a biography of uh, Andre the Giant, and it sort of like tells it in sort of different stories about him. It's almost like short stories. And then Tetris, which is the story of the video game Tetris. And then Child Star, which is was actually recommended by uh, Noah Van Sciver, but it's not a historical story. It's like a made-up story, but it's told like it is like a real story. Like it's a story of a child star that he made up. And uh, of those books, this is the one I like the best. Which is, you know, odd again, because I don't have any interest in uh, Andy Kaufman. But there's just something about the way he tells the story. And I think it's that he it's also the story 
of Jerry the King Lawler. Like he really tells a lot of that story, like Jerry the King Lawler's story leading sort of up to working with Andy Kaufman and then a little bit beyond. And I think those two stories really uh, work together and uh, help with the pace in a way that maybe his other stories struggle with. And uh, it's got some good little asides like about how wrestling works and stuff like that. And those actually really kind of like give a lot of insight into the story as you're reading it. And so I just loved it. Like this was like, this was the one out of any of his books, like I couldn't put down. I like pretty much read the whole thing more or less cover to cover. And, you know, I like his other books too, but this is the one that I really, really enjoyed the most. And uh, so I would give it uh, four liters of chicken fat or eight half liters if you're going with half liters. Yeah, Um, how about sixteenths? Okay, all right, all right, all right. This show's over. (laughs) (laughs) No, we have one more segment. All right, here we are at the letter rip department. That's right, this is where we... uh, we answer mail, listener mail, and uh, also just mail. So uh, you can send us some uh, mail at uh, potterzbpodcast at gmail.com, subject line idiot mail. And uh, please address your, your letter to uh, dear idiots or something to that effect. Yeah, something disparaging and demeaning, please. Um, well, this it, w- it includes idiot, the word idiot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This one comes from Harvey Esquire. He fails to address us properly, but Harvey Esquire writes, Hope those Nova Scotia raccoons have not got you. If you underestimate their appetite, things could go bad. Harvey. <laughs> he also he does include a video, so I'm going to play that now. Okay, it's 10 to 7, and I got a bucket of grapes. I'm going to throw that whole bucket out because I can't get out the door to do the hot dogs. So, this is going to be fun now. All right, here, 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 here. Come on, come on, watch your toes. Watch your toes. This is a 21 minute video. (laughs) (laughs) He sent a 21 minute video, but this is, this man uh, has, I think it's James Blackwood, Maybe it's his name, or maybe that's the raccoon's name. <laughs> he has tons of videos that are at least 20 minutes long. So, <laughs> you're a Nova Scotia boy. Do you know this guy? Well, you know, I live in Nova Scotia, but, you know, I'm not a true lower Canadian. Um, I'm an upper Canadian. I moved here only 14, 15 years ago uh, from upper Canada. And uh, so, you know, I'm an outsider looking in. So uh, I don't necessarily have all the answers when it comes to Nova Scotia. What was the question? Is it about raccoons? Yeah, I don't know. Do raccoons get you? There was no question. It's just a wish (laughs) that the hope that he hopes that the Nova Scotia raccoons have not got you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it is a problem here. So I used to work in a gun store here. And so uh, I know a little bit about raccoons, you know, because people like to shoot vermin. Um, But it turns out you're not allowed to shoot raccoons here. They're not covered under a varmint license. They're like a protective species. They're sort of seen as part of the ecosystem. So you can only, I think it's only live traps here. So the populations do grow. And so I could see if you're like an eccentric old Nova Scotian and you want to spend a lot of time with raccoons, this is probably a good place to do it. If you can't shoot them friend them i guess there you Feed go, them grapes yeah. you can shoot coyotes but you can't shoot raccoons that's kind of strange thanks timothy chalamet what, yeah, what's your prime a, minister's like, name 
Al Jolson. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Justin Trudeau. Dude, that's the second Al Jolson reference you've made. <laughs> I'll keep one of them, whichever one has better timing. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks, Harvey. Although, you know, you lose points for not addressing it, dear idiot. But, uh, you know, friend of the show, Harvey Esquire. Uh, it's great to hear from you. And uh, we look forward to getting more letters in the future. Well, here we are at the begging and groveling department. Uh, this is where we really, really get down on our knees and just do whatever, whatever it takes. And I mean, whatever it takes. Whatever you want. <laughs> to get your likes, to get your subscriptions, to get your rates and reviews on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, to give us a uh, five-star or five-chicken-fat, uh, whatever it is kind of review that you can give. We, we need that. That really helps. And, uh, you know, we're hurting, folks. We're hurting. We're hurting hey. for a squirting. <laughs> <laughs> By squirting, I mean uh, I, your listen. likes and your subscriptions. <laughs> It got such a reaction of me because I was literally about to say hurting for a squirting that I, I can't believe. Oh, my God. I could like... have had that moral high ground there. Damn, I should have not said anything. <laughs> Give it a sh share. Share it with friends and family, all right? Spread the love and, uh, you know, help this this new show grow. We're a grower, not a shower. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Kyle, if people want to want more of you and less of me, what should they do? <laughs> if you if you join my Patreon, you can get the exclusive Kyle only cut of uh, <laughs> CP, where I've cut out Patrick and I've just replaced him with that tumbling tumbleweed song. <laughs> no, you can find me at my website uh, kylebridget.com. That's where you can find me for all of my. Uh, artistic endeavors and you'll find all of my social media links on there as well everywhere else i'm at little cozy nostril including youtube where i do a show called canonically crumb which explores the uh, comics and characters of our crumbs crummyverse and as well i live stream every sunday from 7 p.m to 9 p.m central time in the nostril zone where we listen to tunes and draw cartoons what about you patrick well, if you want to check me out, flippinthrough.com, you can find links to all my social media stuff, uh, including YouTube, youtube.com slash at flippinthrough. I have a weekly show. Every Saturday, a new episode comes out, and I flip through an issue of Mad and uh, just yap and yap about it. It's a lot of fun. Um, if you want to check out every other Friday, I do a live stream, and it's a little bit of a madhouse. And I do whatever I want, and I look through whatever I want. Even hardcore pornography. <laughs> usually, usually hardcore. I'm not talking about the legal stuff. Like no, this it's is, a it's a family is... show. I I look through humor magazines and uh, other nerdy things like that that are printed on paper. It's a family show. <laughs> there you go. Yes, just like the aristocrats. And you can also find the slow poisoner, alias Andrew Goldfarb at his website, theslowpoisoner.com, and at YouTube, at The Slow Poisoner. All right. Well, we'll be back in two weeks. Hey, thank you for listening. By the way, Ed, how's your mom?
Excuse me, sir. The show's over. Get away, zit face. <laughs>